There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Come on, girls. Let's go shopping. That's not a knife. <laughs> this is a knife. What are you looking at? Rolling in a boy, jumping man. You're mad, you bastard. Far am you. Far am you. There's no cash here. Here, there's no cash, right? Cash, no. Robo? No cash. Where to Christ, Liz, you get a bag of all sorts in here, mate. Welcome to Walk Hello and welcome to The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied landscape that is Australian cinema. I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that this podcast is being recorded on, the Wajak people of Perth region. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community and pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past and present. On this episode we take a look at Ann Turner's 1989 horror drama Celia. One of the aims of this podcast is to try and broaden the understanding and appreciation of Australian cinema and all its wide, varied intricacies. Where in the past I've covered well-known films like The Castle, Dark City, and Wake and Fright, I've also tried to cover lesser-known films that have somehow slipped through the discussions of time, Lucky Miles, The Sentimental Bloke, and now Celia. As you'll hear soon, I've been lucky enough to have been able to employ the assistance of the great David Hart from Pop Culture Case Study, who's been a previous guest on many, many episodes, and Anya Novak from Daily Grand House and AnyaWrites.com to discuss the film. And as you'll hear, they'll do a much better job than I ever could. Part of the reason why I chose Celia to discuss on this show was naturally, it's a great film. I also chose Celia because it's written and directed by a woman director and you know I want to be able to try and uh, broaden the the aspect and variety of films that are covered on this podcast and one of the best ways of doing that is showing the diversity that Australian cinema has to offer. Anne Turner made her directorial debut with Celia and did a phenomenal job with it. It's a very deep and fascinating film that covers a huge array of, of, of really interesting topics that some Australian films just don't tackle. Anne went on to direct multiple other films, with the most recent film being 2006's Irresistible, which starred Susan Sarandon and Sam Neill. Celia, the film, was nominated for two AFI awards, oddly enough, none for Anne Turner, or the actress who portrayed the titular character, Rebecca Smart. The two nominations went to supporting actresses Marianne Faye and Victoria Longley, who ended up winning the the award for Best Supporting Actress. However, in this preamble discussion about the film, what I want to touch on is the fact that Celia has fallen out of critical discussion around the world. There are, if you do a Google search, a few articles here and there around the place, which is great to see, but it's not as widely remembered as many Australian horror films are. Besides a recent screening of a restored print at the 2017 Melbourne International Film Festival, Celia has been somewhat forgotten. It was previously released on DVD through Umbrella Entertainment, but that disc is now out of print. It's also unfortunately available to stream online, not through Ozflix, not through Stan, and not through sometimes you can uh, rent movies through Vimeo as well. It's not even available there. Hopefully, if I pester Umbrella Entertainment enough, they might do a, a release next year for Celia on Blu-ray. That would be fantastic. The question then is raised, what is being done to help keep these lost films in the memory of filmgoers? It's hard to pigeonhole Celia into one specific genre. Is it a horror? Is it a drama? Is it a social commentary film? Is it a thriller? 
Who knows? There's a lot of different things that are going on in this film. The political overtones are certainly a lot more challenging than many viewers have prepared for. But that doesn't mean it needs to have access denied. Films like A Cold Summer, Ned, The Combination, Ra Choi, Pure Shit, Spirits of the Air, Gremlins of the Clouds, which is Alex Proyas' debut film, all are either out of print or simply have never had a home release. A Cold Summer, which was one of my favourite films from 2003, was directed by Paul Middleditch and released then, 2003, and has never had, as far as I know, a domestic release on home video or streaming outside of its cinematic run. And in fact, probably hardly anybody went and saw it because it was an R-rated film as well. Also from 2003 is Abe Forsyth's comedy Ned, which was equally loved and hated by Australian audiences. And I know that, uh, you know, certainly some people at Film Inc. are huge fans of the film and it would it ranked pretty highly in their uh, best Australian films of the, the new millennium uh, list, which they did recently. And, you know, it's a good film. However, outside of its cinematic release, and it did terribly at the box office as well, it's never had a proper home video release. Instead, you can actually watch it on YouTube in five-minute sections that somebody has illegally uploaded. Um, it's a bit sad that that is the only way to really watch that film. So what is being done to help preserve such films and make them available for future generations? Well, there's a few things that are happening. Ozflix TV, or Ozflix.tv rather, which is the website, uh, launched last year, which is uh, an Australian streaming service. And the aim of it was to have every single Australian film ever made available. As noble as that aim is, there's many questions to be had about whether that goal will ever be obtainable. You know, going back to uh, Alex Proyas' debut film, Spirits of the Air, Gremlins of the Clouds, there is a whole bunch of rights issues uh, surrounding that film, which not even Alex Proyas himself has access to be able to release that film or talk about it or screen it anywhere. Pretty sad, actually. So, you know, that's what Ozflix TV does. Boutique home entertainment provider Umbrella Entertainment has done a great job of providing a platform for Australian genre films to flourish, with films like The Man from Hong Kong, Body Melt and Road Games all getting lavish Blu-ray releases, which has obviously been made with a lot of love and care. Madman Entertainment does the same thing, uh, but they also do a lot of newer releases too, which is fantastic to see. On top of these places, there is the NFSA, the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia, a place where at very art of varying forms is curated and stored for future generations. Thanks to film festivals like MIF, the Melbourne International Film Festival, and the Sydney International Film Festival as well, and also locally in Perth where this podcast is recorded, uh, Revelation Film Festival 2, uh, which every single month has what's called an Australian Revelation screening occur. Well, they show retro screenings of films that have possibly been forgotten. They are delivered in the way that they deserve to be seen, on a big screen, with a bunch of people, in a cinema. These have brought awareness to films that without these screenings or restorations, they may have been forgotten to time, like many of the early 1900s films that were made in Australia. Now a lot of those films in the early 1900s just simply don't exist anymore. Um, the very first feature-length film, which is the, the story of the Kelly Gang, unfortunately only a few minutes of that film exist, 
And it's simply because of the fact that the the celluloid that they were making films on then was very, very fragile. And often, a lot of the time, the film itself was either, you know, if it didn't make enough money, then it was just burnt and, and used as fuel or something like that, um, you know, to essentially stop taking up space. That part of history is gone and it's, it's quite sad, but it makes it even more important that heading forward, we maintain an archive of Australian cinema and TV as well, because Australian TV is is proving to be um, pretty great if you're looking around the place. Clever Man, The Kettering Incident, Wentworth, Glitch, whole bunch of great Australian TV out there. Think of Wake and Fright as well, a film which was being widely regarded as one of the great Australian films ever made. It was pretty much lost to time, and until there was a, a complete film print of it found in the early 2000s, uh, not in Australia, mind you, completely in a different country, that it was able to be restored. Without that restoration, it's possible that it could have turned into a mythic film, that we only talk about in a what-if manner, or really in a bit of a hushed tones as to like, wow, this film could have been something great, but we'll never get to see it. Only those people back in the 1970s could. Hopefully as we progress forward and the world turns into a wider, more digital platform, that we start to respect and care for Australian cinema in a greater way. I hope that one day going forward that when I ask people the the inevitable question that I unfortunately tend to know what the answer is going to be at the beginning of uh, each episode that I record, which is, have you heard of the film that we're discussing, in this case Celia, most of the time they say no. And I'm really hopeful that that in the future, when I, I, I won't do another episode on Cilia, this is it. But say, for example, I do an episode on that Spirits of the Clouds, uh, Spirits of the Air, Gremlins of the Clouds. See, it's so forgotten that I can't even remember the title of it. If I ask people about that, they'll be able to say, yes, that's Alex Proyas' first film, and I know all about it. That's what I'm hopeful for. Australian cinema, it's great. It's powerful. It says a lot. Heck, with Celia, a film about communism and dead rabbits, it's, it's, it's as unique as it can get. And it's a, certainly a very dark film. It's a very powerful film. And it's a film that even if you don't, haven't seen Celia, which odds are many if you haven't, um, this is still a discussion that's worth listening to. Yeah, it, you probably would like to go into this film not being spoiled, but unfortunately, uh, in the meantime, um, you know, that's unavoidable. I highly recommend listening to this discussion. Uh, It's fantastic. And I'm eternally thankful to both David and Anya for taking the time to both watch and discuss this film. Please do head over and seek out their work. You won't regret it. Till then, let's have a listen to the trailer for for Celia and we'll be back with their discussion. Creep, creep, creeping came the hobbyars. Skip, skip, skipping on the ends of their toes ran the hobbyars. And the hobbyars cried, pull down the hemp stalks, eat up the little old man, carry off the little old woman. 
mistake. Yeah, you can have her on one condition. You're not to play with the tanners anymore. They've got Granny's mask. Swear on my living heart, blood will never part. special guest host for this episode of The Last New Wave, sitting in for Andrew. Uh, my name's Dave. I also host another podcast called Pop Culture Case Study. Uh, so you can look that up on your uh, on your podcatcher of choice if you think, like, I do a decent job on this show and you'd like to listen to me more. There's plenty of stuff there. Um, so um, before we kind of jump into the movie, we're going to talk about a kind of, I think, a little-known Australian film called Celia, uh, which I, of course, had never heard of before Andrew tasked me with this. Um, being the, the host, I get to choose my own guest. And, and since Andrew told me, like, this is a little known Australian horror movie, um, I've got definitely a couple people online that I talk to who I really respect when it comes to talking about horror movies. Uh, and one of those people, uh, is Anya Novak. So she's joining me here today. So thank you for being on not my show, but my show for tonight. Hello, thank you for having me on Not Your Show tonight. Yes, absolutely. So um, for those that don't know about you, and they all should because I think you're a really talented writer, um, where can they find your stuff and what have you written recently? Uh, I'm a columnist for dailygrindhouse.com. I write about the video nasties, the 72 films that were banned in England, in the UK, uh, throughout the mid-80s. And I write about one a week, and that's where you can find the bulk of my work. But the rest of my work you can find at onyourrights.com. Yeah, great. Um, and honestly, uh, people, now that I'm reaching a different audience, uh, you guys should check out the website and check out her work. She's one of my favorites, so definitely check her out. All right, so before we uh, jump into this, um, what is your experience, if any, uh, with Australian film? Uh, it's mostly with horror, actually. It's with uh, Wolf Creek. I'm very familiar with that one, and The Babadook. And um, I know it's it's kind of a point of contention. It's arguable as to whether or not it actually counts as horror, but uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock mm-hmm. is the other one I'm really familiar with. And uh, the last one I can think of is The Pack, 2015's nice. The Pack, that wolf movie. Uh, I'm pretty familiar with those ones. Uh, beyond that, I honestly don't watch much uh, Australian horror. I guess I need to get out more. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, there's no matter how many movies we watch, there are going to be so many we miss. So sometimes it's good to kind of figure out some of our blind spots. But I'm also glad you brought up um, a movie that you're not sure whether it's horror or not, whether it counts, because I think that's kind of a common argument, especially online. If you talk to people who like horror and people who maybe aren't so much into horror, it's like, does this really count? Is this a genre? There's like a billion subgenres. And I think Celia kind of fits into that, right? Absolutely. Uh, it, it also reminded me of a, a movie called Three Women, another movie from the 70s, where it, it's kind of, it can be called horror, and it can be called not horror. It kind of sits in this weird periphery of horror where there are elements of it, but it can also count as just high drama. Right. And um, it, it's arguable. And, and there are, there's a solid argument for either side as to whether or not it actually counts as horror. For me, I would still count this as horror just as I would three women or, or heavenly creatures. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So when you sat down to watch Celia, like, had you ever heard of this movie before? What were you thinking as you, you know, press play on Celia? Nothing. I went into this completely blind. No trailer, no IMDb summary, nothing. I thought it was likely a horror movie because that's my wheelhouse and you asked me to do it. So I was like, okay, well, it's, it's, he probably picked me because it's it's horror related. Um, and it does have horror elements. Uh, it's even got a slimy creature and a smidge of gore to it. So uh, I counted as horror and I went into it knowing absolutely nothing about it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, I had kind of the same experience. I, I think it, it the movie definitely threw me off because I went to, in totally blind. I knew it was an Australian horror movie. That's all Andrew told me. Um, and it's a movie that apparently is really hard to find. I don't think it would matter if you researched it online beforehand because there's not much out there. Like there's a couple articles, a couple reviews, but this is something that I think has definitely been lost. And I think this is why Andrew wanted me to cover it on his show was because, you know, it's a movie he feels like is really good and deserves to be talked about and really isn't very much. Um, and I think my only issue with it, and it, it definitely went away by the end of the movie is this movie. If you're walking into it thinking it's a horror movie, it starts out very much like a horror movie like it does not pull punches in the first five minutes like not only do you have this you know weird story about these demons but like the opening sequence you have a little girl discovering the decaying corpse of her grandmother like that is pretty horrifying then you have all these kind of dream sequences later and i think that being in the very beginning made me think this was going to be much more of a creature movie than it ended up being that's exactly what I thought too. It, it was, I thought it would be uh, a little more Guillermo del Toro like in 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 its creature featureness. Oh, I'm so and glad it didn't they, turn out I'm that not way the only at all. Who thought that when they first introduced these demon creatures? I was like, uh, and you have a little girl being the protagonist. I was like, is this pants like right. like what? Yeah, yeah. I had that same. That's reaction. what I was. I was going down that road mentally, um, and it, it didn't turn out that way. But I'm not. I'm not mad at it. I'm not disappointed. I I don't feel like. Um, I don't feel like my expectations weren't met still. Yeah. It was still a good movie. Yeah. And it, it's a very different movie. Like you don't, you don't usually see, I mean, you don't see a lot of movies with, you see creepy kid movies, but a lot of times those creepy kids are not your protagonist. I think it, it puts us in a really interesting place by the end of this movie, because I think at least for me, as I'm following along with this girl, like, yeah, she does some things that are questionable and she's, you know, she's dealing with the death of her grandmother and she's dealing with, you know, what's going on in the world outside. But the way this movie ends, like, I, I mean, how did you feel when this movie ends, you know, with, with the killing of an adult by this child that we've been following for, you know, the last a hundred minutes or so? Well, okay, so the climax was super abrupt, yeah, and that's where the gore comes in, but it makes sense within the context of the plot, and I think that um, the director, Ann Turner, was definitely building towards that, and what got me was that weird, light-hearted feeling of the ending. It was in direct contrast to this, this dark game that these kids are playing, um, and it reminded me of uh, Baba's A Bay of Blood. Mm-hmm. which has a super violent ending that's immediately followed by its perpetrators frolicking gaily down the road to this whimsical woodwind music. That contrast is really jarring and it's done again here in this movie. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but oh, we can spoil the whole thing. Like this is, we, we go can spoil under the whole thing. The, yeah. We go under the assumption that people have either seen the movie or don't care if it gets spoiled. Like we did an episode on the Duke and we said everything. So feel free. Okay. So when, after Celia kills the the cop kills this guy um she has a witness this other little girl Mm -hmm. her her little playmate her meek little playmate 
was a little too meek, it turns out, because Celia ends up sort of uh, uh, terrorizing her through this little game. She's she's kind of messing with her and, and acting like uh, in the under the guise of the game uh, that she will kill her friend if she speaks up, if she says anything. And then the friend kind of like goes along with it. She's she's all like shocked by it. But then by the end of the, the, the sequence, she's running up the hill and smiling and laughing with the rest of them. And it's really off putting and weird, not necessarily in a bad way. It was just I'm not used to that in a movie. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think the other thing that's interesting about this movie to me is is the the context that it's in, the setting it's in. I mean, it takes place in in 1957. It was actually very educational to me. I didn't know there was like a red scare <laughs> in Australia. I had no idea that this was a big deal. And I did some research afterwards, and you know, you know, amazingly, other things happen outside of the United States. You know, there are, you know similar things going on in the world at that point. So I thought it was a really interesting context for this kid to be growing up in. Not only you have the grandmother dying in the first scene, but we find out like grandma definitely had communist leanings and you're trying to kind of figure out where this family sits. Like, is it shame that they're dealing with or is it they are very anti-communist? So there's a lot going on here between that family and the family next door. So what did you think of the the kind of broader context of this horror movie? Uh, I thought that it was it was a lot to put into a movie that had a kid uh, as its protagonist, but Guillermo del Toro, like we were saying before, totally does that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, she deals with a lot of stuff at once, like this peer pressure, conformity, bullying, culture clashes, even blacklisting. She deals with blacklisting. Yeah. Um, all of these things play out through Celia's imagination, which, by the way, is presented really matter-of-factly. Yeah. The monsters are given you know, no surrealist cues or anything like that. All these fantastical visions, they pop up. Uh, as frankly as any of the injustices that she faces day to day from the adults in her life, and um, I think it was it was different, but it was it was done very well. It was done delicately. Mm-hmm. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, um, yeah. No, go ahead. No, no, that was it. Okay. Um, the other thing I noticed really about this movie is that there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of great adult uh, like parental figures here like whether you're talking about the teacher um or the or her parents or the people next door like there's definitely some some niceties going on with the with the mom next door but it does seem like she doesn't have very many people to look up to or to help her deal with what she's dealing with as far as you know dealing with grief right and then some of these adults are are malicious outright malicious and then others are incompetent at best they're they're clueless about what she's going through and that's something you see in um, a lot of Stephen King stories I've read uh, where the kids are dealing with more than you think they are and they can handle a lot more than you think they can but the adults are largely clueless to that and it's it's something that you don't see in most uh, what I call bad seed films like the bad seed and the good son those kind of movies most of those films are from the perspective of an adult close to the bad child, whereas Celia has us seeing what Celia sees and allowing us to observe how she processes her world. Yeah. Speaking of which, I, I think it's always it's always a gamble as as a filmmaker to have your a protagonist or even one of your main characters be a child because – 
child actors. You know, it's uh, it's uh, it's roulette at best. Um, so, what did you think of the the young performance in this movie? She did amazing. Right, <laughs> she did a good job. Um, what was her name? Uh, uh, Rebecca Smart. Yeah. That was her name. I have it written down here. Uh, the film, she did a great job, and and she brought uh, a level of realism to the role. Uh, she she nails it, and she displays a range that's pretty remarkable um, for for a child actor and, and in general. She put me in a state of unease several times throughout the movie, and she brings this this life to her character in whatever she feels, no matter whether she's happy, whether she's sad, whether she's scared, whether she's frustrated. Um, and that's important in a movie about an imaginative kid who is disconnected from reality. She really did uh, carry that disconnect across. I think she's largely a sympathetic character, but she can get pretty rotten when things don't go her way. And Rebecca Smart, she had no problem going back and forth between those those emotions. Yeah, I actually think it makes her a scarier character than than a character characters like you brought up from these like kind of bad seed movies. Like it's you know, those characters are scary because mm-hmm. we see in general we see kids as relatively innocent and they're usually not the villains. Um and then you see this like very stereotypically like bad kid and everything they do is bad. They're manipulative, they're violent, they you know, they go after the other kids, whatever it may be. And this you can actually understand her actions, even if you don't agree with them. Like, I mean, she gets to the point where she's like, you know, essentially like creating a, you know, a weird cultish religion and stabbing a voodoo doll and throwing it in the fire. Like it's, you know, there's, there's a lot going on there, but we, given what she's going through and especially this kind of subplot with her wanting a rabbit, like we, we really, she endears herself to us. So when she does get out of control and the imagination does get kind of overactive to a dangerous level, I think we still kind of feel bad for her, even though we know she's going down a really bad path. Absolutely. Yeah. We feel, we feel bad for her and she, even when she does wrong, we're still largely sympathetic. We, we understand why she did what she did. Mm-hmm. And even the adults, what, one of the adults in the film, uh, her mother, once she sees that bruising on her shoulder from the, the recoil of the, the rifle that she used, was it, was it a shotgun or was it a rifle? Uh, Whatever. I think it was a shotgun. Once she, uh, yeah. Yeah. Once, once she sees that bruising and then she finds the dog that was left out in the woods and she kind of puts two and two together and figures out what, what happened. She largely covers for her daughter Yeah. and she just says, well, you know, Hey, it's, it's all, it's all behind us now. We're just going to move along. Like nothing happened. And, um, I think that that's kind of a testament to how sympathetic her character is and how innocent she seems, even when she's kind of a little crappy child. <laughs> Yeah. She yeah. murdered someone. Yeah, she I mean someone. I think that I think that's a pretty good catch all. If you murder someone, like it's you're bad. Like that's I think that's You're fine. a bad kid. That's a fine judgment to make, <laughs> I think. I don't think you have anything to worry about there. Um so did you have any um other than, you know, the obvious kind of the ending of this film or near the ending, did you have any particular moments that unnerved you or favorite moments in the movie? Oh, uh, there was a moment with the uh, the rabbits when she when they um her and her uh I think it was her playmate, uh, found the rabbits uh, in the, the – once the government released the, the rabbits back to their owners again, um, the pet rabbits, that is. She 
found her rabbit and it was drowned. Oh, brutal. And that, yeah, that was really hard to see. And I also didn't, uh, didn't really care for the scene where the, uh, the bully, Stephanie, had branded the rabbit. They, they did it on screen. Yeah. It's shocking. And, like, and yeah, yeah, you can see like the, the hot poker going toward the rabbit and then the rabbit recoiling from it and squeaking. Yeah. And it, it looked like they really did it. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe those are just really good special effects I for the time. So. Let's for nineteen eighty nine. Let's say that they were <laughs> just for my own peace of mind and what I just watched. That's actually the scene that immediately comes to mind. And again, I think it's another reason that that we care about Celia is that even with all like the kind of shitty things that she does and kind of the bratty ways that she reacts sometimes, like having mm-hmm. a moment like that where she has tried so hard and wants this rabbit so bad and does everything she can and she finally gets this rabbit and you're like, oh, maybe, maybe things are going to be okay now. Like things are going to be a little better. She's got her pet, you know, even though her dad thinks they're vermin and, you know, and also dad kind of a jerk. Uh, throughout all of those sequences, like there are ways he to tell your callous. Yeah, there are ways to tell your kid you can't have this pet, rather than like leaning over and like hissing that they're vermin. <laughs> this kid, it's like okay, right, not the best parenting. And even there. when she got it taken away, and she heard on the radio that uh, the government was not going to be giving permits to allow them to have their pets back, she turns off the radio and she kind of runs away. Uh, crying in the room and her dad's sitting there in, in, with his newspaper sitting there in his lazy boy and he freaking smirks and smiles at it right like, what the hell's the matter with you dude yeah and it's not subtle like it's not right. like behind the newspaper like the kid can see it you know and it, 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 it makes sense that this kid would be more distant and you know retreat into this life of fantasy because i mean look at look at what's around her like she goes to church and People are being threatened and she goes next door and they're having communist manifesto manifesto meetings, you know, like there's no escape Mm -hmm. for this kid except internal, even the like kids in her neighborhood. Like she's got a couple friends, but then the bullies always show up and steal things and throw rocks like this kid does have a rough existence. So when she finally gets this rabbit, like I remember feeling very happy for her, but in the back of my mind thinking like this movie isn't anywhere near to over. I know something is terrible is going to happen to that rabbit. Like, but it was so much worse Mm -hmm. like i was not expecting to see a rabbit branded on screen like it is you know i've seen and you have definitely seen like you talked about like watching all the video nasties you've seen some disturbing things and sometimes when they're over the top they get less disturbing because you can kind of see the seams and you're like okay this clearly didn't happen but that the way that that is shown and not only the rabbit reacting but her reaction to it too of of yeah. feeling like obviously terrified but also knowing that there's nothing she can do about it like that helplessness portrayed was really kind of like mm-hmm. for me painful to watch yeah yeah i didn't like i mean i see why that was in the movie mm-hmm. but uh I, it was just it was very jarring and kind of unsettling i i I had to turn away a couple of times. Yeah. Even though there was no blood or anything like that, it it wasn't particularly gory. Yeah. It was just, don't hurt the animals. Yeah, it's disturbing. (laughs) And I'm not even like a rabbit guy. Like, I had a pet rabbit when I was a kid, and they're mean. Rabbits are mean creatures, so I've never been like, let's have rabbits as pets. Uh, But, like, the way the movie builds it up and how badly you can see that she wants this rabbit and she just wants to care for it, like, the the way that that's dealt with is pretty brutal. And, you know, it just – and as you mentioned, I think it just keeps getting worse throughout the movie. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it was horrible to watch something bad happen to this animal. And then – but then you have to watch this child – 
find her pet drowned and take care of the body. Like, it's just like, oh my god, no wonder this kid becomes violent. Like, <laughs> at some level, you right. almost don't even blame her. Like, because she has really gone through it in this two hours you're watching. And her mother seems to be kind of tuned into that. Her mom yeah. constantly tries to kind of run interference for her, whether it's with, with the cop or whether it's with uh, uh, her father. Mm-hmm. She seems to understand that her daughter can't handle all this crap. And um, even though she doesn't really understand the degree to which Celia is checking out mentally, mm-hmm. she does seem to get that it's a lot for her to go through and she can't quite handle it all and she needs some help. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of appreciate that in, in that that character. Right. And I can see that also uh, – it makes it clear as to why her mom is the one to cover for her when she sees that, that bruise on her shoulder. So before the end, when mom starts to really cover for her, how did you feel about the mother character? I found myself and you never want to like blame someone in a bad position, but I just kept wanting her to stand up for her daughter and to care more for her daughter verbally, you know, in the face of, of all these things that her husband is doing, whether it's, I mean, there's a scene, there's a literal book burning scene where it's literally the only memory mm-hmm. this girl has, the only physical manifestation that she has of grandma. And he like, you know, knocks it over and, you know, pours stuff on it and lights a match and just kind of watches it. And mom is clearly upset by that, but she kind of just watches and doesn't really stand up for Celia. Right. She seems to kind of defer to her husband most of the time as, you know, kind of a father knows best kind of thing. I mean, it is the fifties. Um, I mean, yeah, it is the fifties. And, and she, uh, she does step in a couple of times. Like when, when Celia is being uh, beaten with the belt uh, her mom, you know, steps in and says, give me the damn bill. Right. She doesn't seem to be very afraid of her husband in, in that sense. Um, but I, I didn't like how the outside, uh, in influences the, the cops specifically. Mm. She was, she was pretty much laying down and taking it when, when this cop was basically letting his daughter bully her. Yeah. And there's, there's one scene where he, he, shows up in the middle of the night and just straight up steals the rabbit and kind of scampers right. away with it. And her mom's like, Oh, and that, that really sucks. Yeah. yeah. Anytime he does anything, this, this cop, she kind of, she kind of just hangs her head down and says, man, this is, we're really getting the short end of the stick here. And that's right. about it. Yeah. And I guess, uh, I, I, guess I would like the- to see more, you know, more, uh, uh, defense on her part. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. I mean, that's why I brought it up, obviously. But I guess to like kind of play the other side, I kind of get given like the political climate of the time, maybe standing mm-hmm. up to the police may not be the best idea because you could be, you know, seen as a communist sympathizer or a communist to be thrown in jail. Oh, yeah. I hadn't know? thought about that. But I do like the fact that when that happens, excuse me, when that happens, Celia, like there's and of course, it's a lot of it's because she's a child, but she has no hesitation I love that she just, like, runs out of the house and wants to track down her pet. Like, that was another, like, really endearing moment. Like, I, you know, you feel bad for her as this is happening, but you're also, like, you're rooting for her, you know, to to make something good happen in her life. Like, I, I think the whole movie, I just wanted, I wanted some good for this girl. Like, please, like, something positive happened. Like, even when she gets to go play with the mask and everything, that gets stolen. Like, she just really, Celia can't catch a break. She can't, no matter what, there's, there's, 
whatever's going on at school with these these kids that are just they are brutal. They throw rocks at her. Right. It's a freaking and these these are big rocks. They were the size of right. your hand. This is not pebbles. Like this is and, not just messing around. Right. And then there there's that and then there's this this adult influence that's seeping in this whole communist red scare thing that she shouldn't have to deal with. She shouldn't right. have to deal with it at all, but she she wants to just play with her friends and now because of some drama between the adults she can't play with her own friends mm-hmm. and that that uh, I think that lends itself to that disconnect that she has later on right and I would argue that that honestly like what you just brought up which is great I think is what the entire movie is about is the the adulthood creeping in on this child um, and making her grow up too soon and deal with things she shouldn't have to deal with. I mean, the movie starts with, you know, a child discovering a dead body. Like, that's not... I mean, granted, there's no good way (laughs) for a dead body to be discovered (laughs) of a family member, but you certainly don't want, like, your seven, eight-year-old child to be the one to find this body and to have to deal with that. Um, Right. I mean, and I was wondering what she thought. Like, I was unnerved very early in this movie with, uh, with the story of the Habyas, um, that this teacher is telling to these children, like that is <laughs> really disturbing. Like I'm watching as an adult, and, this to kids? and I was like, "What?" I mean, maybe I'm asking uh, the wrong person because I know you show you show your kids horror movies all the time. But what did you think That's about true. that? Um, about that kind of school scene that the movie opens with? I mean, you've got you know, you've got demons stealing people, you've got dogs being chopped up into pieces and then put back together. I mean. <laughs> What did you think about I mean, how this movie opened? I read that kind of stuff when I was a kid, hmm. but I, it was outside of school for right. one thing, and uh, for another, it, it was it was because I wanted to read it. Right. I couldn't even imagine that kind of thing being read in a school setting by a teacher to children, yeah. uh, children their age, nonetheless. Uh, I think when I was her age, we were reading. We had a teacher who wanted to read the Iliad and the Odyssey to us. And every week we'd go into her classroom and we read it. And there were objections from the parents right. because of the violence in that. And that's that's like that's Cyclops right. getting, you know, poked in the eye with a stick. That's all that is. <laughs> but this story, this was some this is heavier than watership down. This stuff yeah. was was dark. Oh, way to bring up and, like uh, evil bunnies. Nice. I like that poem. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, maybe, you know, Australian uh Australian schools did it differently back yeah, in the day. Maybe. Like, but I mean, I was, you know, sometimes you put on a movie and, you know, as the movie starts, you're like, you're just getting into it, kind of maybe not paying as close attention as, as you should be. And then that scene happened and I was like, well, what the, what the fuck am I watching? Like, what, Andrew, what have you done? Like, what have you, what have you set me up for? And I think those opening scenes, I think, are why the movie surprises. I, the fact that this becomes weirdly kind of a drama about communism in Australia rather than a straight-up creature feature horror movie uh, is still very odd to me. As I think back on this movie, it almost feels like they're connected, but it almost feels like two different movies. Like you have one short film with these creatures, and then you have this much longer movie about how you know you don't know who you can trust and adulthood creeping in on these children. And it's definitely not the messages I was expecting to get from this movie. You know, maybe that's why they had that dark story in there mm. uh, uh, that's being read to the kids. Maybe it maybe it all ties into that whole theme of of kids who are too young to deal with that stuff, having to deal with that stuff, having to hear it anyway mm. uh, from the adults in their life. So maybe maybe 
maybe that was on purpose for mm-hmm. the teacher to read this this terrifying story to yes. these nine, ten year old kids. And also you have kind of the the encroaching darkness from the outside world, like coming in and mm-hmm. taking over this innocent family, this this couple who's just, you know, living their life on the edge of the forest. And then, you know, the people from the dark or, you know, I think you could easily read that as the communist neighbors, like creeping in and really kind of destroying this idyllic life that this that these quote unquote normal Australians are having. Yeah, and that's that. That's the thing with these with monster movies and creature features is that you, it can mean just about anything you want it to mean, right. and the best we can do is try and figure out what the the writer and the director were saying. Which I think it was the same person. I think Ann Turner mm-hmm. did the screenplay and the direction. Yep. So, I think I think you're absolutely right that that it was it had a lot to do with representing the darkness that was creeping into her life and the adult drama that was trickling its way down uh, unintentionally. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the writer and the director because this this feels I mean you can tell that this is a a beginner working behind the camera and I don't mean that in a negative way, not that it looks amateur, but it looks raw and it looks like there was not a lot of money behind it. I mean, you, you can especially right. tell that with the hobbies and with the kind of slime creature crawling through the window, like just showing the hand. I think that's a really old and good tried and true trick. If you don't have the money, you just show bits and pieces. Like you could go back to the beginning of things like uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Like at first you just see right. a claw, you know, before you really unveil these creatures. And this movie does the same thing. You don't really see it until that last scene where she she thinks she sees this creature and and shoots this adult man. Um, so I think you can tell, but it makes me wonder, like, what happened? Because she only did, like, five movies in total. Um, and it looks like she got one chance at kind of a movie with a, with a relatively big cast. I think she did a movie with Susan Sarandon in it. Uh, but this is a director, yeah. like, I would have loved to have seen more, especially in the kind of horror genre from her. Yeah, it looked like she could really she could really tell a story and she could really get to the heart of the characters involved. And I think that's that's what you need in really good horror like Guillermo del Toro. I know I keep I keep bringing up Guillermo del Toro. Oh, you are, Toro, but you that's, are speaking my language. Go ahead. My favorite, please. <laughs> that's who I, I think of with this movie. Yeah. Um, even though it's with a much tinier budget and with a, a, a stranger story, I think that it, it reminds me of a lot of, of his stories where – it can kind of be fantasy, it can kind of be drama, it can kind of be horror, or it could be a mixture of all three, but that would be too easy to just say it's all three. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, we'll and, I, and I think I think Del Toro definitely, like when you look at things like uh, The Devil's Backbone or Pan's Labyrinth, mm-hmm. he is, I, I think, I mean, he might disagree with this, but I think it's, I think those movies have horror in mind. Like they are fantasy stories, certainly, and it's a lot about storytelling and symbolism, but the images are so horrific, especially and sometimes more so in the real world than in the fantasy world, where I think this I I mean, it definitely is a horror movie, but I can see why the director at first was like, no, I didn't make a horror movie. Like, that's not what this is about. Like, I can definitely see why she went that way. So they are different, but I can, like you, I think I can see those connections between these two directors. Right. I think that uh, Ann Turner does what Guillermo del Toro has been doing in those movies you mentioned, like uh, The Devil's Backbone or Pan's Labyrinth, where he uses, she uses uh, uh fantastical narrative and and fantasy elements in order to process the horrific things that happen in kids' lives Mm -hmm. um, as they grow up. 
I think that's what puts it in that sort of horror fantasy register for me. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. I think one more thing I'd really like to bring up is how surprisingly subtle this script is, given what it's about. I mean, given that there's horror elements and that you have this, you know, this encroaching doom of the of communism in Australia being brought up, I thought it would have been really easy for them to go over the top with the kind of don't trust your neighbor and the red scare. And I like that they never said the words like don't trust your neighbor. They, they just literally had the neighbors be the communists. I really like that. And I like that, Honestly, it took me a second to figure out, like, oh, Grandma was a communist. Like, they they definitely make it clear later, but that first shot of just kind of panning across the books in her room after Mm -hmm. Celia has gone to hide in there, I thought it was, like, a stroke of genius to just put you in that world and let you know something without hammering it into your skull. Right. I think that that's that's what good storytelling is, but I also think that these days, (laughs) with with (laughs) <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, yeah, where, where critics will say it was confusing, it was boring, uh, and and they'll they'll say things, they'll they'll call it pretentious, which means uh, I I couldn't figure it out. So yes. I'm gonna say that they were they were trying to advance beyond their station for right. this artful uh, fantasy that that they couldn't achieve. And I don't think that that's true at all. I'm gonna say it right now. Mm-hmm. It's not pretentious. Right. <laughs> they do they do lay it out for you. It's just in a more subtle way and you have to actually sit there and pay attention and think and, mm-hmm. and you know, use your brain a little bit. Yeah. And I think that, that really good horror and good fantasy and good storytelling in general does just that. Yeah, and also there's a I love that the way that the our our main character's parents find out about the communists next door isn't like they walk in and catch them, you know, for lack of a less punny term red-handed in their uh in their meeting (laughs) sorry i just i couldn't let it go um and but instead they find a folded paper airplane that their child innocently has brought back not thinking about the ramifications of of her actions and again it's one more way that it endears us to celia is that she's not doing this in a way that is like out to get anybody she just she's a kid who likes a paper airplane and she happens to bring it home and dad for once is actually having a decent bone in his body and it's like hey let me show you how to make a paper airplane let me show you how to make Mm -hmm. make a better one and then of course unfolds it and finds this you know communist message on it i thought that was a really smart way to involve this child once again in these adult matters right and when it comes down to it it's a theme that is hammered home over and over again throughout the story is celia just wants to play Mm -hmm. (laughs) she just wants to be a kid and play with her friends and these things just kind of happen to her now what she does once these things happen to her uh, (laughs) maybe not not always the best (laughs) maybe not the best yeah she's kind of a crappy kid at the after that yeah by the end for sure but yeah, I think what you were saying is part of what endears us to her is that she's like any other kid and she just wants to be a child right. and you can't fault her for that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I also thought another really nice touch in this movie and again that they didn't overdo is these kind of visions of her grandmother she keeps having, like all dressed in black in this kind of mourning attire. So you're const- you can never forget how connected she is. To her grandmother, like even after death and after the grandma is no longer, you know, aware to anyone else. I like that they keep bringing us back and going, remember, 
this child is sad and this child is dealing with something that no child can handle on their own. And, you know, it's the 50s, so there's no, you know, there's no therapy going on. And the parents certainly aren't, you know, willing to talk about it. It seems like they're more angry that they have to deal with it rather than kind of helping their child through this. Right. It's kind of an inconvenience to them. And once once all is said and done and once the credits start rolling, she's back to being a happy, carefree child again, even though she just terrorized her, her playmate into silence right. over her murder. <laughs> well, wouldn't you feel again, happy? She murdered someone. Wouldn't you feel happy? I mean, like everything worked out. You know, the body's hidden. That kid's going to be quiet. It, I think everything's good for Celia. Right, which is a heavy contrast to the ending of The Bad Seed, where Rhoda Penmark gets away with murder. And then because it was made during the code era, the Hayes Code era, um, they couldn't show her uh, getting away with murder. So they had lightning. The the director had to change the ending and have lightning strike her. (laughs) She literally has lightning strike her and she dies. Literally punished by God. Like just... Yes. Yeah. It was totally like a, a hand of God ending. And right. it was, you know, people were pretty upset about it. It was like, this is a total cop out, but that's, right. that's what the Hayes Code does. Yeah. You had to do it. And in Celia, you didn't have to do that. Yeah. And so she got away with it. That brings up an interesting point, though. Like, where does this movie leave us? Like, if you had to guess what happens to Celia and her mother going forward? Does she deal with her issues and just be a regular kid? Or is she kind of damaged beyond repair as this as this murderer that we see at the end of the film she damaged that girl messed up now <laughs> she i had the same thought i'm like things are not happy-go-lucky for long right you know it, how long is it going to take until that girl stephanie starts messing with her again right yeah because whether or not button man <laughs> right even though her dad's no longer in the picture she was still a crappy kid too yep and so it's only going to be a matter of time before Stephanie starts messing with her again. And what Stephanie doesn't know, at least right now she doesn't know, is that, you know, her her victim killed her father. Right. And so uh, it's it's if there were to be a Celia 2, uh, <laughs> I think that Stephanie would definitely be uh, it would be something of a revenge film. Right. But we'd probably feel pretty bad for Stephanie by that point. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting they have that scene uh, in the movie where Celia refuses to close her eyes and pray until she's caught. And I think that definitely tells us, like, she is not moving on in any Some way. Some remorseful. No. Like, there's... Right. And, and it's another great nonverbal performance from this young actress, because there is some there's something dead behind those eyes in that scene. It is disturbing. Right. It, to me, that scene is more disturbing than the, the shotgun scene. Like, just that she is, like... No, there's no tears. She's not upset. She's not looking around. She's like, oh, somebody caught me being emotionless and a cold, calculated killer. I should probably close my eyes now. Right. And at first, when she wouldn't close her eyes, I I was kind of searching her face and trying to see, well, maybe she just feels really bad and she's kind of struck by guilt. And maybe she's going to stand up and say, it was me. I did it. But she did not do that. She just kind of stared at her, at the, her victim's daughter. Right. And, uh. Kind of just stared her down, like, yeah, I did that. Now what? what? Now what? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's clear we both really enjoyed this movie, and maybe even if it wasn't the movie we expected. Um, so, you know, and I have a question that uh, Andrew asked me all the time, and it's so hard to answer, so I'm just going to apologize ahead of time. Um, <laughs> but 
What do you think it is about this movie that makes it stand out as Australian or in, from our perspective as something different than we usually see in like more in, in our kind of Western American cinema? Uh, well, as far as in Western American cinema, we tend to tie up these loose ends. We tend to um, be a lot more clear cut in how these kids process the world around them. And here there's definitely like we you had touched upon earlier. Um, they don't spoon feed it to you. They kind of just let the scene play out. And if you're observant enough, you can figure it out yourself. Um, I think that the the subtlety of the monster and the creature is definitely something that you don't see very often in Western cinema. Right. Um, the, the now that like you said that might be a budget issue or it might be just you know a, a style statement on the on the part of the writer director. Right. Uh, I think that can be as seen as, as Australian too, though, because I mean you look at movies like The Babadook, like the the focus mm-hmm. is not on the creature; it's about surviving. The creature, and I think this movie is kind of similar in that way. I think you're right. I think when I think of Wolf Creek, it's also the same thing, where it's not so much about the the killer, this guy out in the desert. It's it's more about the victims and how they uh, uh, strive to live, how they strive to survive. And um, yeah, I think you're actually right. I'm not sure if that's if that's Australian or if that's that's cheap. That's just or... a, a, a <laughs> right. Yeah, I can't yeah. Tell. I mean, there are there are um, there are instances like that. I mean, obviously the most you know the most obvious example of American film that has has had to deal with things because of budget reasons or things not working right is Jaws. And sometimes when you when you're forced to deal with these things that are not working or you don't have the money for, sometimes you come up with genius work. You know, and sometimes it's way better than it mm-hmm. would be if you saw the creature. Like, I think if we watched two hours of the Babadook and his top hat running around and terrorizing people, it's nowhere <laughs> near as scary. Just like if we saw, you know, another 40 minutes of the Habyas in this movie, I think you start to see the themes and you start to see what the creatures are made of. And it, it's less scary than this kid's fantasy world and what they're putting across here. Right, because there's no real surrealism to it. It, it was even more jarring when you didn't get what you're normally expecting with a creature feature. You're normally expecting this swell of music and, and a whole bunch of fanfare. And you don't really get that with, right. with this. And that subtlety is what is so unnerving. Right. All right. So I just have a couple more questions before we close up here. Um, the first one is, I was thinking of this myself, like, how would I and who would I recommend this movie to? Like, it's a very difficult movie to describe oh, in a way yeah, that, tough. that people might watch it or might enjoy it. And I think that's Andrew's whole purpose here is to get people to actually watch Celia. So if you were to give like the, you know, the 10 second spiel of why someone should watch this movie, what do you think you would say? I would use the movie Three Women as my gateway. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that one. It's got Shelley Duvall. It was in the 70s. Yeah. And um, in this, in that movie, it, it's it's kind of a genre straddler, and it encompasses a whole bunch of different uh, uh, subgenres. And it could be described as a thriller, as horror, and even fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Celia is the same way where it, I think it's actually best to go into it not knowing much of anything about it. Uh, beyond that, it might you might call it a bad seed kind of movie. Sure, um, but I would I would definitely put in the caveat that you're not going to go in there expecting Orphan or the Bad Seed itself. Right. Yeah, that it's it is a different movie. But um, I, I would just say that it's subtle and that 
the closest thing I could call it is the bad seed, a, a bad seed movie. All right. Perfect. That's good. What about you? Um, I don't know. I was like really struggling with this because I had watched it and I had a friend ask me about it and I was like, I don't even know where to start other than right. it is, um, it is it definitely, I would definitely put it under horror, but it's not a gotcha horror movie. It's not necessarily a creature feature. It is more, it, it's more the horror of, of, of the fact that you can't trust people and that, you know, sometimes there's nothing you can do to stop a bad situation. So it's like the horrors of real life that's framed by this creature feature. And it's a really interesting piece of work and a movie. I wish we got more movies like this. I think that's the best way I can put it. That's the best recommendation I can give is that it's not a movie you can watch um, casually. It's something you really have to focus on and pay attention, but is utterly rewarding if you do. So. Right. It's something you, you can't put that on a Netflix in the background no. while you get your housework done. No. You you have to sit and engage with yeah, it. This is not a folding laundry movie at all. Like, right. Do yourself a favor and really engage with it if you can find a copy of this. Um, the, the last question I had is, I mean, we definitely talked a lot about Guillermo del Toro. And, you know, that is always the way to my heart if you want to give recommendations that involve GDT. <laughs> but um, are there any other movies that you think of that you would recommend that are like this? Like if people have seen Celia or do see it and really enjoy it, what else should they go see? Oh, Heavenly Creatures. That's the one I'm thinking nice. of. It's got a Kate Winslet. And it is... Well, it's based on a true story, I believe, about these uh, two schoolgirls who right. do some bad things. They are they're bad seeds too. Yeah. And um, it's it's a slow burn movie like like this one. It's kind of a, I wouldn't call it a pot boiler, but it's 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 a study. It's more of a character study than than um, than plot based, and and it's it's not you're not going to get a lot of action out of it. Yeah, I think in terms I of think- tone and speed, I think that's the perfect. Uh, kind of pairing for Celia. I think that that really works. Yeah. yeah. What about you? Um. I mean, this is so tough because <laughs> I, I love it when guests just turn around. And I, I have a good question and I don't have an answer for it uh, because, of course, as I was <laughs> watching it, the the first thing I thought of uh, was Pan's Labyrinth. Um. I would actually, I would actually say that the good seed is still a um is still a good is still a good pairing with this if you go into it kind of realizing the time. Uh, because I think there is a lack of understanding towards the child in both of those movies. And I think Celia mm-hmm. probably deserves more understanding <laughs> than the main character in that <laughs> other movie. But And I think it's also just a really interesting time capsule. I actually just watched that movie pretty recently. And it is it is played almost almost like a stage play as opposed to a film. So you can kind of see how how film has changed over the years and how the presentation of a similar story has changed. So I would I would check that one out. But that's a good one too. Yeah. All right. I I will never turn down the bad seed ever. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. Um so I think we both I think it's both clear that we we both really enjoy this movie and I think it's definitely worth watching. And hopefully someone important in uh Australian cinema will hear this and and give Celia, you know, the release it deserves because I think it's definitely something that's been lost and shouldn't have. Um but one more time before you go, why don't you tell people um where they can hear you, where they can read you, all that kind of stuff. I am at Bookish Plinko on Twitter. That's bookish as in the people who like to read books and 
Plinko, as in that <laughs> stupid Price is Right game with the coins that you drop into a little, a little grid. Um, and that's where I'm at most of the time, talking about horror and film. And my work, my writing on horror and cult exploitation films can be found at OnYourWrites.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Last New Wave. That was a pretty great discussion there, wasn't it? You know, Anya and Dave, they know their stuff. And again, I'm really grateful and thankful that they watched the film and they stuck around for a whole hour to discuss it. I I really appreciate it. There's a lot to learn there. And, you know, these are two great people with great minds. With that in mind, make sure to follow them on Twitter. Uh, Dave is at Pop Culture Case Study and the Twitter handle is PC Case Study. And Anya is at Bookish Plinko, and that is bookish as in the book, and Plinko as, as she said, the, uh, the, the, that game that is on the price of Rhine. Um, they're both fantastic people. Please do go across and follow them. Make sure as well, you know, because usually I would ask for people to support me on Patreon, but because Dave essentially did this episode, I'm going to ask you to support him on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com, do a search for a pop culture case study, pop a few dollars down and support the guy. He is fantastic, really great guy, and you know, and I'm not just saying that because I've done a bunch of episodes of his show and I've had him on here. Um, you know, even if I even if that wasn't the case, I would still think he's pretty good. Uh, so yeah, please do go and support him on Patreon um, and throw a few dollars his way because you know he does great stuff. If you want to follow me, you can do so on AB Film Review on both Facebook and on Twitter. And you can also listen to previous episodes of this show and our other show, which is AB Film Review, on abfilmreview.com. Lots of great stuff there. I do interviews with directors, uh, discuss other Australian films as well on The Last New Wave. Um, If you like interviews with directors and film type people and stuff like that, then head over to followingfilms.com where you can listen to the Following Films podcast where host Chris Maynard interviews uh, various different you know, film people, whether it be directors, actors, writers, producers, etc., cinematographers, a um, whole bunch of great stuff going on there. Really, really great discussion, so I highly recommend heading over and listening to that. There's also other great shows in there as well, True Bromance Film Podcast, War Machine vs. War Horse, and of course Pop Culture Case Study. That's really about it. Hey, look, if you enjoy what we do, please also try and leave a review on whichever device that you can. Uh, I think it's mostly iTunes, so if you can, leave a review on iTunes would be fantastic. It just helps people seek out the show and and recognize that it exists. Um, And maybe, look, hey, if you've got a friend who likes films and they have their phone next to you, um, then essentially just go and pick up their phone, go to their podcast player of, of choice and type in The Last New Wave and subscribe them. They'll be thankful that you did. Uh, well, I'll be thankful and hopefully they will too. Anyway, look, you've heard enough from me. Uh, I really appreciate, appreciate you having listened to this episode. Um, please keep watching Australian cinema. It means a lot. It's great stuff. Enough from me. I'll see you on the next episode of The Last New Wave. <laughs>